Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Danny Brassell, a highly sought after speaker, trainer, and coach known as Jim Carrey with a PhD. Dr. Danny Brassell has spoken to over 3,500 audiences worldwide and authored 16 books, including his latest, Leadership Begins with Motivation. He's the co-founder of thereadinghabit.com, the world's top reading engagement program. My conversation with Dr. Brassell was November 8th, 2021 for reference. Now let's dive in and listen to Dr. Brassell's conversation. I'm educational justice coach, Lindsay Lyons. And here on the Time for Teachership podcast, we learn how to inspire educational innovation for racial and gender justice, design curricula grounded in student voice, and build capacity for shared leadership. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach. I'm striving to live a life full of learning, running, baking, traveling, and parenting because we can be rockstar educators and be full human beings. If you're a principal, assistant superintendent, curriculum director, instructional coach, or teacher who enjoys nerding out about co-creating curriculum with students, I made this show for you. Here we go. Thank you so much. I'm really excited for our conversation today. And so I'll just start by asking, you know, I just read your professional bio and sometimes people feel like, you know, there's all the professional accolades and accomplishments and, and things within that bio. But if you kind of distill down to who you are and, and, and what you want people to know about you as a person, how would you introduce yourself to listeners in that way? Well, humility is key to me, uh, Lindsay. Uh, uh, my, I, I injured my Trump finger a couple of weeks ago. I was mowing the lawn and it got clogged. And uh, I went to unclog it, forgetting that the lawnmower was already operating. And so I chopped off my finger and uh, I've been going to doctors for the last month and a half. It's been driving me crazy. And then it got infected. So now I have a heart catheter and I realized the importance of good health and uh, grinning and bearing it. So I think if there's something that people have to know about me is I ain't all that. <laughs> it's actually, it's something I used to always uh, tell my students, like you ain't all that and neither am I. And I always tell people, if you think you're all that, teach kindergarten for one week those little ones will, will set you straight oh my gosh what a story I'm so glad you're like on the recovery end of that wow. <laughs> and yeah oh my gosh kindergartners and kids in general I feel like right they will tell it like it is <laughs> absolutely they have no tact filter it's wonderful <laughs> I once had a little girl and she asked me if I was all right and I'm like yeah I'm fine she's like well somebody forgot to tell your face and I'm like okay I'll smile more <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> <laughs> oh, love kids. <laughs> yeah, great. Oh my gosh. So, well, that'll, that'll be a nice segue into <laughs> thinking about education system and, and as educators, you know, Bettina, Dr. Bettina Love talks about freedom dreaming as dreams grounded in the critique of injustice. And so as she's talking about painting these big dreams and holding these big hopes for the field of education and, you know, what school is like for us all. Um, I really like this idea of grounding them in the critique of injustice. And so I'm curious with that kind of framing, what is the big dream that you hold for the field of education? That's a great, huge question, Lindsay. I mean, I, 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 I think that one of the things we strive for in America is the wrong thing. We're always striving for equality. And I don't believe in striving for equality. I believe in striving for fairness. You know, uh, I think it's unfair to treat everybody equally. Some kids don't need much attention. Some kids need a lot of extra attention. And uh, there's, I'm a person, there's, there's a, some, some people look at the glass as half empty and then you get the people that look at it as half full. I look at it as it's overflowing if you look at it from the right point of view. To me, the pandemic may have been the greatest single thing to happen to education in 150 years because now people like you and me are forced to learn how to use this 
thing called Zoom or whatever kind of technology. And I get really excited, Lindsay, because right now there's uh, some kid that may not have had breakfast that's on a dirt floor right now in some impoverished place in the world, even could even be in America. And as long as that kid has a laptop and an internet connection, they have the exact same access as the head of Google. The world just got a whole lot smaller. You don't have to be born in New York City anymore to have a huge impact on the world. And I, I'm excited about this next generation because right now there are kids out there that normally would be disenfranchised that are going to have uh, tremendous opportunities and doors open for them. So my view of education is fairness. I, uh, I've been actually focusing a lot of my work, my company, we're working a lot with developing countries throughout Africa, India, Pakistan, in Indonesia. Um, I was, before the pandemic, I spoke to a, a school of about 5,000 girls in Chennai, India, and these two beautiful young women come up to me afterwards, both with huge grins. One wants to be a doctor, other one wants to be a lawyer. I said, that's great. Are you going to go to university here in India, or maybe you'll go to, to Great Britain or the United States? And they're like, oh, we can't leave India. We're girls. I'm like, get back in that auditorium, got them all back in. And I'm like, now is your moment, ladies. I mean, uh, within the next five years, India is gonna be the largest country on the planet in terms of population. I mean, you're a very young democracy. You're just over 70 years old, yet you've already elected a woman prime minister. America still hasn't elected a woman president. I'm like, right now, there are twice as many women in India as there are people in the United States. There are actually more women in India with a graduate degree than there are people in the United States. And I looked at all those young women. I said, hey, you've just made it my, my mission. Like the next CEO, the next world leader, the next really good parent is coming out of this audience. Don't let anybody ever tell you what you can't do. Uh, it's something I've always told my students is sometimes you need somebody else to believe in you before you believe in yourself. I believe in all of you. They only give me the best and the brightest. Let's have those high expectations. And you know, the world is our oyster. I love that reframe. Yeah. Of like, let's, let's think about the fact that India has right, elected a, a female prime minister huge over what, what has been happening here. And I, I love that reframe and recontextualization of often how we might think of people in the United States are very U S centric and mm -hmm. how we might think about other countries. And I, I really appreciate that you, that you named that as kind of like this, this pivot of let's reframe, let's think about this. And so I think reframing and this, this idea of mindset shifts are huge and critical to fighting for that dream of fairness as you, as you spoke about. And so I'm curious to know, like, what are those mindset shifts that either students or educators or any, anyone who's in the field of education could really benefit from if we just shifted our mind around this, this, this key thing, you know, how do we get closer to fairness or what does that look like to be able to shift to get there? Well, you asked really good questions, Lindsay. I appreciate that. You're very thoughtful. Um, well, I believe, to me, my definition of happiness is progress, constant growth. I constantly have to grow. So me personally, I, I'm a, a visiting distinguished professor at the American University in Cairo. And so, again, before the pandemic, I was at the university, but I, I love to speak to, to schools in the area when, I, when I'm there. And uh, I was booked to speak at a whole bunch of Muslim schools. And there was this one um, Islamic school I was at at two in the afternoon uh, doing a parent training. 400 parents, Lindsay, showed up at two in the afternoon for my training. And it was like the Muslim Brotherhood. All the guys had the long beards and all the women were wearing burqas. And we were talking like you and I are talking right now. And that was a great moment for me because I said, shame on me. 
I had all these preconceptions and I realized they actually turned out to be one of my greatest audiences ever because you know, and I know my, my passion is getting people to love reading. And so I, I, uh, I started off my presentation. I said, I was reading this book. Have any of you ever read the Quran? And they all laughed. I'm like, oh, well, then, you know, the story in the Quran where the angel Gabriel appears to Muhammad in the cave. What's his first instruction of Muhammad? Because the first pillar of Islam is to read. And so I looked at the parents, I said, so not only should we get your kids reading, it's actually written in your holiest of texts that it's your duty to get your kids reading. And all of a sudden everybody's nodding. I'm like, this is my dream audience. They're listening to everything I'm saying. And I think that's what I want with education is uh, uh, UCLA basketball coach, John Wooden won 10 national championships in 12 years. One of my favorite quotes he said, he had lots of great wisdom. I encourage all of your listeners to, to read his book. They call me coach. It's one of the best books I've ever read. But he, he always said that it's the things you learn after you know it all that make the biggest difference. And I think we're in a society right now, it cracks me up how smart everybody is. Everybody knows everything. And I, I, I think I take the opposite approach is I really don't know much. The, the older I get, the more I realize I don't know anything. Uh, I, and working, you know, I've taught all age levels. I started off as a secondary teacher and then they, they, they got me from high school to middle school to upper elementary to lower elementary to pretty soon, instead of preparing kids for college, I was coming home with snot marks all over my pants from the little ones hugging me all day. And I learned that little kids are incredible the way they look at the world. We ignore them. We, we pay them very little attention and we should really pay a lot more attention because they look at the world in a totally different way. Now, I'll give you two examples. Uh, I had a little girl, Maria, five years old. She raises her hand one day and she said, Mr. Purcell, where does it say Humpty Dumpty is an egg? And I laugh and I start reading the nursery rhyme and I'm like, it doesn't. Nowhere in that nursery rhyme does it say Humpty Dumpty's an egg? But there's always a picture of an egg. How did I miss that? You know, uh, I had a little six-year-old, Tyrell, Tyrell. Tyrell raises his hand and one day he's like, Tyrell, he's like, Miss Purcell, Miss Purcell, is, is Curious George a monkey or an ape? And I laughed until I reread the book. I mean, have you read Curious George, Lindsay? All right. I have. What does the man in the yellow hat call Curious George? He always calls him my little monkey. Well, where's his tail? Curious George doesn't have a tail because he's not a monkey. He's a chimpanzee. I've read that book 3,000 times, missed it every time. Tyrell got it the very first time. That's why if I'm ever murdered, I want a first grader on the scene, not my wife. You know, a first grader would be like, he's approximately six feet tall, dark jacket, dark pants. My wife would be like, I don't know. I think he's this tall. I think he's white. You know, kids are much more observant than adults in many ways. And I, I just... That's what I love about education. I, I, I think we, we take the curiosity out of kids. Like I, at least in the United States, I swear, we find out what kids like and we make sure we take it out of the curriculum. And we find out what they hate and we make it mandatory. And you and I are both readers, Lindsay, and what always disturbs me is when I read biographies of successful people, they usually have one thing in common. They dropped out of school. And I'm like, What's that say about the way we're educating people? And it kind of gets to, you know, I'm going on a, on a tangent, but really what your, your question is asking, like, how do we fix education? I'm like, there's not one answer. There's 38 answers. You know, when people ask me, oh, should, should we put them in a public school or a private school or a charter school or a magnet school or homeschool? My answer is this. Yes. It depends on the kid. 
you know, different strokes for different folks. What works with this kid might not work with this kid. The job of education is to cater to the kid, not to cater to the institution. You know, it might be easier to have 30 kids listen to the teacher directly, but that might, that might not be the best way to, to reach that kid. Wow, so many great points there. I just want to. I'm sorry, I give long answers <laughs> to short questions. <laughs> no, this is so great. I just want to highlight. You know, I I love the idea of recognizing that we don't we don't know everything, and like I love that you even said like right, like I don't know anything. Like that humility that you that you brought up at the top of the episode, but then also that commitment to a lifelong learning. I think came back when you were talking about the um, like autobiographies of successful people and thinking about yes, they dropped out of school, but they're also committed to their own personal growth and learning. And so how do we cultivate that in kids? I also love the point of, you know, we totally take out the curiosity and the lens with which kids view the world and, and kids come in loving learning. Like most people love to learn. And then we kind of like, get it out of them by the time that they reach us. So as a former secondary teacher, I will say, you know, some things are are actually easier that you wouldn't think would be easier in primary grades because they still have that curiosity and ability to see things differently. So when I came into my class and I was like, all right, we're going to have a unit where you just tell me what you want to learn about. And we're going to each have, you know, everyone doing a different unit. I actually got resistance from the students because they were like, no, you're the teacher, miss. I have been in school for years now and I know how this thing is done and it's you tell me what to do and I do it. And how heartbreaking, right? Like if we could bring that curiosity back, I, I you know, we should, yeah. we should never get rid of it in the first place. Uh, you, you got me. I'm a Baptist in your front row right now. <laughs> Amen. Preach to the choir. I mean, why was it my kindergartners would go to bed with their backpacks on because they were so excited to get back to school the next day. Whereas my middle schoolers were thinking of ways to get sick. What happened in those eight years to get that kid to hate school so much? I mean, if I'm doing my job, my kids should be banging on my classroom door at five in the morning. They're so excited to get in there and they should be in tears when they hear that final bell because they don't want to leave. I mean, that's a big deal to me is I, I, I want I want school, not really school. I shouldn't say school. I want learning to be something that is a lifetime addiction. It's a habit. You don't need me to tell you to be curious. I want you constantly. We, I think we'd all be better served if people are asking why all the time. You know, in education, one of the frustrating things for me is a, as both a, a, a teacher and an administrator is just a lot of, you know, mandatory policies. I, I've gotten fired so many times because I'm, I annoy my, my superiors. Cause I always say, if the answer to the question is not because that's what serves the child the best, why are we doing it? I'm not doing this because the state or the federal government tells me to do it. I'm doing it because it helps this kid. And if we're missing that, we're really, we can't see the forest through the trees. And I just think that there's a whole makeover that we have to, you know, but I think there's opportunities. I have I have a lot of faith and hope. I'm not I'm not one of these, you know, Debbie Downers. I see all kinds of amazing things happening all the time. Mm, I I love that as a transition point too to the next question of, yes, like so we have the hope, we have the vision, we know what mindset shifts are needed, and then what does that look like for a person who's listening and thinking, okay, I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to bring back that curiosity. I'm ready to center fairness in, in my lesson plans or my school policy. What does that actually look like in terms of what are the steps that educators or, or family members or anyone really can take 
to be able to make this kind of dream that we've been kind of cultivating throughout the episode so far come true. I love where you're going with this, Lindsay. I mean, I, I think we overcomplicate way too much in American education, you know, and this is going to be self-serving. That's my, my company, my online reading engagement program. That's why I created it. So basically, uh, I always tell people, I think schools do a, an adequate job of teaching kids how to read. But the question I always ask people is, what good is it teaching people how to read if they never want to read? You know, I teach kids why to read because I've never had to tell a kid, you know, go watch TV. I've never had to tell a kid, go play a video game. And I never want to have to tell a kid, go read a book. I want them to choose to do it on their own because they enjoy doing it. And so my reading engagement program is basically designed for, for teachers and for most importantly, parents. And every day they receive a quick little video from me about five to seven minutes every day, giving them a tip on how to get their kids excited about reading at home. And what we're trying to do is to get the kid to read for at least 20 minutes a day at home. They don't have to be consecutive. And if you read aloud to them, those minutes count as well. You know, And we find that after just about two months, kids that go through our program have boosted their reading abilities by about two to three grade levels, which is great. That's all fine and good, but that's not what gets me excited. What gets me excited is that no matter how bad a school can be, I've properly armed that kid so that they're constantly going to be curious and read the rest of their lives out of school. And the research is really, it's really very conclusive on this. It doesn't matter what you read, what matters is how much you read. People who read more, read better. You know, um, it doesn't matter if you're reading James Joyce or James and the Giant Peach. Uh, I always tell parents, the little boy who only reads Captain Underpants is gonna be a much better reader than the little boy who refuses to, to read anything. I mean, to me, Captain Underpants is the gateway drug to Shakespeare, but you gotta get them hooked. And that's what I'm constantly doing as a teacher, as a parent, uh, as, a, as a principal, I'm looking for what, what turns this kid. I mean, I, when I was teaching second grade, I had a little boy, Kiara. I, I spent most of my career in South Central Los Angeles. And um, I had a little boy, Kiara. And Kiara's first grade teacher told me, Kiara, don't know nothing. I'm like, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Kiara, who don't know nothing, comes in my room one day. He's like, hey, Mr. Bissell, you see Barkley last night? He had 18 points, 16 rebounds. I'm like, thank you, Kiara. Because from that point forward, every day after lunch, I'd sit Kiara on my lap and he and I would read the LA Times sports section together. And by the end of the year, Kiara was one of my top readers. And all that kid ever read about was football and basketball. And he was interested in sports. But now that he's identified himself as a good reader, he's a confident reader. None of us do things where we feel uncomfortable. I always love that. When people, I'm like, no, 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 no. Humans are very predictable. Humans avoid situations where they, they might look stupid. And uh, I, my policy, build up that confidence, make a person, you know, it's like one of my favorite movies of all time is Dumbo. You know, you, I'm got, I got to give them the magic feather, but you always had it within you. But uh, again, so many of us, we We've been told bad things. You know, I, I, I've been blessed, Lindsay. I, my wife is from Singapore. She grew up in an environment where people were telling her her entire life what she could not do. Whereas I have a photograph of me when I was four years old. I'm wearing space boots, a San Diego Chargers jersey, a sheriff's badge, and a fireman's helmet because I was going to be the first ever astronaut, professional football player, police officer, and firefighter. I mean, that's the world I grew up in. And I think every kid should be entitled to growing up in a world like that.
Wow. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love, I love the dream. I love, I love the four-year-old picture that I'm now imagining in my head. This is lovely. And then, yeah, thinking about the, the program specifically your program, and then also just a call for, for everyone, no matter what program they're using to be talking about why to read. And also like that, that variance of, there are so many things we could be reading, right? Like you can totally read the sports section. I think about all of the people who I know now as adults who are avid readers that, hated English class or they hated school in general because it was a very prescribed way of, of reading and they never identified as a reader until, you know, their thirties or forties, you know? And so there's so many folks who just have this love and passion for reading that wasn't even cultivated until years after college. And that's terrifying to me that we're, that we're doing that in our system to kids. It's so true, Lindsay. I mean, if you really want to get a kid to hate reading, tell them exactly what they have to read and then make them do a book report on it. I mean, I remember in high school, I was forced to read the, the Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne and no offense to the people that love the Scarlet Letter. I mean, that's fine that you love that. Uh, basically it's a story of Hester Prynne has committed adultery. So she has to wear an A on her chest. And I, I raised my hand and asked my teacher if I could wear a B on my chest because I was so bored reading that book, you know, and why is that literature? Why, why is that literature and Sports Illustrated's not literature? I mean, maybe 200 years from now, people will be like, oh, you haven't read Frank DeFord's columns on the New England Patriots? I mean, that was very important back in the late 20th century. I mean, who's to say that? You know, and it, who's not to say that Nathaniel Hawthorne, when he wrote The Scarlet Letter, people are like, oh, that's just trash, man. He's just, I mean, that's really, that's trashy stuff. I mean, who's to say? It's, it's like when I hear people talk about culture, you know, oh, it's only culture to go to the Philharmonic, but not to the monster truck pole. I'm like, they're both cultural. It's just however you want to define culture. I mean, it doesn't mean one's better than the other. I don't like that snooty point of view. I, I, I think that, um, well, I mean, you, you, you've got it from me. I, the research, again, is very clear on this. It doesn't matter what you read. What matters is how much you read. I mean, I'm a lazy reader. And uh, so one of my... Uh, about 2003, I created one of the, it's one of the top reading programs online called lazyreaders.com. It's a free subscription. If you subscribe once a month for the rest of your life, you get 10 book recommendations, three or four adult level, three or four young adult level, and three or four children's level books, all under 250 pages. So you have something you can read when you're stuck in a meeting or waiting in line. Because people always say, I have no time to read them. All you I'm like, yeah, who has time to read after you watch the game on TV, have a couple of beers, go out shopping? I mean, you know, I always tell parents, I'm like, kids ain't stupid. They ain't going to read. They don't see us reading. You know, if, if, if mom's smoking all the time or dad's smoking all the time, I'm going to tell you there's a very high likelihood the kid's going to be a smoker. Um, you know, with <laughs> kids are paying attention. All, this is why I always tell people, I'm like, no matter what you do, you're always a teacher and a role model. It doesn't You don't have to have the definition of a teacher. Kids are paying attention constantly. That's what's driving me nuts about society right now. Like politics, people see the way politicians talk to one another. And I'm like, let's get rid of the politics and really focus again on public service. Like, why aren't you doing anything to help people? You know, why, to me, I don't understand why it's a political education, a political issue, why not every kid that wants to get a college education in this country can't get a college education. I mean, to me, if you're poor, but you want to go to Harvard, we should make sure that that kid 
has the ability to go to Harvard. Now they can pay it back. We can create like a domestic peace corps where they pay it back in service or something like that, or pay it back, whatever. Uh, same thing with healthcare. I mean, when I had this stupid finger, I was bleeding to death. I'm gonna remake every Little House on the Prairie. And what I'm gonna do is, my, on my episode of Little House on the Prairie, Laura goes to visit the, the town doctor, but before the doctor watches her, she's bleeding to death in the waiting room, filling out disclaimers and waivers. Cause that's what, I'm like, what happened to just customer service? I mean, why can't anybody, and when I was there, there was a guy and, he, he was not, he was, I have health insurance. There was a guy of limited means and he had a stack of, of hundred dollars bills to pay for. And I'm like, this is disgusting. Anybody that gets hurt should be able to go. I mean, why is this a political issue? Let's look at public service. How can we make our country better? Get rid of the politics. Let's see how we can serve. People talking about wasting money. My gosh, you know, I could say education, I could save you $5 billion a year if we just got rid of standardized testing. I promise you no standardized test has ever produced a better leader in this world. Matter of fact, most of the leaders that support these standardized tests couldn't pass these standardized tests. I'm sorry, I'll get off my soapbox. It's just driving me nuts, the negativity in the world where there's so many possibilities out there. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm just nodding along, right? Like these are not political issues that you're naming, right? They are human rights issues. And like, let's, let's serve people, right? Let's, let's do a good job. So yes, I am, I am there with you. And I think there's so many exciting things that you talked about and you kind of just got layered in there. So like lazyreader.com sounds like an awesome, like suggestion. Yeah. For books. And, and I think about when I lived in New York city, I actually, commuted probably like you know an average New York City commute is like an hour one way to to wherever even if it's just like two miles down the road so so I think that was a time when I read so much my first job I had usually like a five-hour round trip like I read the entire Game of Thrones series in one school year you know so I think sometimes we don't realize that we have that time where we complain about the commute or whatever it is and it's like, oh, if we only popped in an audiobook, like you said, the reading aloud or being read too is, is equally valuable. And so reading a book or reading aloud, there are so many ways we can get information and learn. I mean, I'm a, obviously a fan of podcasts, so mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's another way. Um, but I, I wanted to name too, I really resonated with when you were talking about the book that you didn't like being Scarlet, The Scarlet Letter. For me, it was Catcher in the Rye. Mm -hmm. I have basically hated the idea of a canon ever since I was told to read Catcher in the Rye. I was like, this is the worst book. Like, I just can't even. And I think about that constantly today as as an educator and thinking about what we prescribe to kids or what we even present on the bookshelf for kids to kind of roam through and pick out. There's often not, you know, graphic novels. There's often not fantasy novels. There's often things that like, my friends as adults are really interested in and would have read, you know, a lot of if they were presented those options as kids. And I just think, you know, for the the educators listening or the families listening who could kind of curate bookshelves or take kids to libraries and go to your public library, you don't even need to own the book, right? To be able to go to the different sections and present all of these options sounds like just such a meaningful way to encourage kids to be able to get get the book that they are interested in, in their hands and, and start reading. That's right. I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, I love Jane Austen, but why is Jane Austen more considered more literature than Frank Herbert's Dune? I mean, Dune's an incredible book. I mean, I know science fiction is one of the best ways, best ways to get a lot of kids or, you know, who's that, 
that's that welfare mom, Joanne Kathleen Rowling, who uh, wrote a series of books about a little boy wizard by the name of Harry Potter, you know, which has been the most banned book in America for the last 25 years. And thank goodness, because there's no way we should allow young children to stand outside a bookstore at midnight waiting to buy a 900 page book that they want to read in two days. I mean, what's society coming to? I mean, I like to remind my friends that have the problem with Harry Potter. Without Harry Potter, you don't get the renewed interest in the Chronicles of Narnia. Kids have this amazing thing between their ears. We should let them use it from time to time. We shouldn't censor any books from kids. I mean, I, like, again, now I, I'm a parent. You know, there's obviously, I don't believe, I believe kids have the rest of their lives to be miserable. I want them laughing when they're with me. So I like things that are positive and encouraging, you know, but that doesn't mean that eventually you're going to want to get into deep, some deeper thing. I mean, you, know, you just mentioned Game of Thrones. I mean, George R.R. R. Martin's not like a happy-feely kind of author. I mean, anytime you've... Anytime I, I start to get interested in the book, he kills a different Stark. And I'm like, my goodness. So, uh, um, you know, but this is what I love. I, and I love that you provide this forum, Lindsay. I mean, that you and I can have this kind of discussion. I mean, I hear so many useless discussions out there. I'm like, I'm much more interested in what, what turns people on to what they're reading. Because it's funny, Catcher in the Rye was the first book that actually got me to laugh out loud when I was a kid. So I liked it. But I love that you hated it. I mean, that's a good discussion. That's what we need to do is say, well, this is why I liked it. This is why I didn't like it. That's we need to have those discussions. This is when we're talking about politics, the same, it's one of the big lessons I'm trying to teach kids. It's all right to disagree. What's not all right is to be disagreeable. Be respectful of one another. You don't have to agree with me on every, I mean, My wife and I disagree all the time, but it doesn't mean we don't love and respect one another. You know, uh, I think one of the biggest problems we have in America is we don't teach people to talk about sex and politics and religion. I'm like, that's the wrong lesson. The, the right lesson is to teach people how to talk about those things in a respectful way, you know, so that we don't have these screaming matches that I see all the time. I mean, what kind of modeling? I actually wrote a letter to the LA Times. They didn't publish it because they're dumb, uh, but they had accused the president and Congress of behaving like children. And I wrote in my letter, I'm like, that is such an insult to children, you know, because kids get over it. You know, the thing I love about little kids is kids will get in a fight and 10 minutes later, like, this is my best friend. You know, and I love that. It's adults that hold these grudges. We can learn a lot from kids if we pay attention to them. Wow, that's a really powerful message. That is such a powerful message. And I, and I love that they that you wrote that letter. I'm really sad they didn't publish it. But, but that's such a great point, right? Um, and actually, I, I think that probably transitions nicely into the next thing I wanted to ask about. So as people are kind of listening to this episode and they're, they're taking in all of the various ideas that, that you shared and all the different resources that you shared, as they think about, you know, how do I really live in alignment with this commitment to fairness and this, this value of who I, who I want to be when I show up and I, and I want to model and I want to, you know, show kids that I read too and, and all of these things. What is one thing that would be a good starting point for someone who, as they're ending the episode and thinking about like, what's my next step to really start this kind of way of being as an educator or, or a parent or family member um, to, to kind of model this stuff? What would you That's suggest? That's great, Lindsay. So I want to give all of your listeners a presence. So if they go to freereadingtraining.com, again, freereadingtraining.com, I'm going to give you all a complimentary e-copy of my book, Read, Lead, and Succeed. It's a book I wrote for a school principal who was trying to keep his faculty positively engaged. So I said, okay, I'll write you a book. So every week I give you a concept, an inspirational quote, an inspirational story, 
a book recommendation on a book you should read, but you're probably too lazy because you're an adult. So I also give you a children's picture book recommendation that demonstrates the exact same concept. You can read that in five minutes. I mean, I've always thought that Mother Goose and Aesop's fables, they tell us a lot of the morals, a lot of the most important lessons we learned when we were, were, uh, when we were little kids. Um, and I'm also going to provide um, uh, some trainings that I do with parents to get their kids excited about reading. I mean, there's basic things. The reason I, I told you 20 minutes a day is uh, researchers were trying to figure out what makes kids successful. They were looking for common habits and traits and they found one which startled them. And it was the number of minutes spent reading outside of school. They looked at the low kids, the average kids and the high kids. They saw that the low kids in about the 20th percentile averaged less than a minute a day of reading outside of school. Well, that's not a surprise. It's probably why the kids are at the bottom of their class. This is what actually startled the researchers, though, they looked at the kids in the middle of the class, the 70th percentile, the C students, the average students, they average 9.6 minutes a day reading outside of school. So when I'm doing a live training, this is when the first parent hand raises and they say, well, wait a sec, are you saying if I can get my kid to read 10 minutes a day at home, I can take him from an F to a C? That's exactly what I'm saying. The research is actually pretty conclusive on this. But what totally floored researchers were the kids near the top of the class in the 90th percentile? Do they spend three hours a day reading outside of school? No. Do they spend one hour a day outside of school? No. The average was just over 20 minutes a day. That's what I'm showing parents to do, 20 minutes a day. You know, so like if you're, you already gave a great example. Like if you're commuting to and from school for, it takes you 10 minutes each way, just put in an audio book. You just covered your 20 minutes that way. And that's a great way to keep kids. I, I don't know about you, Lindsay, but uh, like on my exercise bike, I love the TV show Billions. And so I only allow myself to watch the show Billions while I'm on the bike. You know, you can do the same thing with like your podcast. Oh, this is my happy time. I listen to Lindsay's podcast when I do my daily walk. Uh, I listen to The Catcher in the Rye or The Scarlet Letter when I do this, something that that is, is good. Um, and then... You know, I always tell parents that the research is also very clear that being read aloud to is just as well as doing it on your own. I mean, people don't realize over over half of Fortune 500 CEOs are dyslexic and dyslexics actually are better auditory learners. And so that's one of the things that they do is they listen much better than most of us. And so that's a great way if, if you I mean, and people have to understand all reading disabilities are curable and dyslexia is probably the most undiagnosed reading disability out there. But, uh, you know, people from George Washington to uh, Tom Cruise, to, I mean, there's a lot of success to Richard Branson. These are all people successful in their fields that were dyslexic. Um, and then, you know, probably the best tip I give to parents is President Bush Sr over 30 years ago, signed a very important law in this country. It says every television set in America has to have closed captioning. I always tell this to parents, turn the closed captioning on the TV. It's instant print in the home. And people say, wait a sec, if the show's in English and the subtitles are in English, what good does that do? I'm like, that's a good point. Let me make a point. Have you ever watched a show with subtitles and not looked at those words on screen? It's very difficult to do. Your brain is oriented towards the text. And there's actually research that supports this. If you look at reading scores around the world, the more kids watch TV, the lower their reading scores are in every country of the world, except for one. The country that watches the most TV also has the highest reading scores in the world. It's Finland. And how can this be? Well, 
Finland makes really bad TV shows. And so what they do is they import all these old American sitcoms like Happy Days and Gilligan's Island and the Brady Bunch. They subtitle them all and finish. The kids are constantly reading. So that's the easiest quick fix for everybody. So these are just some simple tips that anybody can do. But again, what we're trying to do is to get kids excited about reading. When you're driving, when you're on that train, you know, you can be pointing to signs. Oh, what, you know, play I Spy with a kid. Um, get them reading that way. Get a, reading is all around us, but you got to make it fun. This is the secret to all education. I mean, now more than ever, because we're competing against a lot of things, but you can make it fun. I see teachers every single day that take extraordinarily, extraordinarily boring content and they make it engaging. You know, it, and one of the easiest things I do with my kids is my, I have three kids of my own is when I read to them in bed, if I'm reading them a boring story, we'll play a game that, where they're like, you know, read it like a pirate, like a pirate. And so I read a page. Arr! So I read it like a pirate and they're laughing. And, oh, read it like a robot. We just have fun with it that way. They're still getting the experience, even with the lame text. So those are some quick, quick tips. I love those tips. And it's funny. I actually, I've been trying to teach myself Spanish and I've been turning on the Spanish captions for mm. the Spanish show. And I'm like, okay, so I'm hearing the audio, but I'm really also reading and practicing my reading in another language. So I'm glad the research backs up. <laughs> that that's does. a good idea. It does. Go. <laughs> I'm here to reaffirm everything you're doing, Lindsay. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> So one of the things that I want to ask, and I always ask at this at the end of the show, because I just, I think it's so fun to, to know, and you kind of self-described as a, as a lifelong learner, someone who's constantly, you know, not, not knowing anything and continuing to, to broaden that. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to know, what's something that you have been learning about lately? Josh, what am I even learning about lately? Uh, well, the, so the book I'm writing right now, so the last book I wrote was called Leadership Begins with Motivation. And this was interesting. I read it after I wrote it and completely unintentional. This is like a, an homage to Paul Harvey. I grew up listening to Paul Harvey on the radio. He, he passed away a couple of years ago at the age of 325 years old. But when I was a kid, he'd come on the radio at 12, 15 every day. He'd be like, I'm Paul Harvey with the rest of the story. And he'd tell you these stories and you're constantly at the edge of your seat trying to figure out who or what he's talking about. And so um, when I was a middle school teacher, I was the first teacher at my school never to have any tardies because I always started my class with a Paul Harvey story and the kids always wanted to hear it. But a lot of those are about, you know, like the founding of Sears Roebuck. Well, a kid in 2021 doesn't know what Sears or Roebuck is, you know, so I wanted to update it with, with people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and, and uh, companies that the kids are, you know, how, the founding of Google and YouTube. Um, but after I read the book, I'm like, holy cow completely unintentionally, almost all of my examples in this book are of white male Americans. That, and that was not intentional. And I'm like, huh, that's interesting. And so the book I'm writing right now is all about, you know, females, international people and minorities. And I'm having a ton of fun uh, doing that. And so like, I'm always looking for inspirational stories. So I, I was writing this one about these two women Martha and Agnes, they were both uh, successful choreographers and Agnes had just opened her third play on Broadway and it was doing all right with audiences, but the critics just destroyed her for it. And so she was going to close down the production. And so she, she tells Martha, you know, I, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. And Martha's like, no, you have to, you know, it's not for anybody else to decide what your work is. It's not even for you to decide, but if you close down this play, the world will lose it forever because there's only one you, there's only gonna ever be one of you. 
and she gave Agnes the confidence that she needed. Now, Martha was Martha Graham, who's known as the mother of modern dance. She won the Kennedy Center Honors and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And Agnes, her friend, was Agnes DeMille, who became the, she won all those accolades as well. She became the first woman to have three successful musicals on Broadway at the same time. And she decided she wasn't going to close down the musical she had just choreographed. She just changed the name to Oklahoma. You know, it's... It's stories like that. I, I mean, I live for stories like that. That's why I stopped watching the news. Actually, the one thing I watch on TV is CBS Sunday Morning. Greatest show ever. They have all these great inspirational stories. It's, it makes you happy to be a human, uh, you know, as opposed to that horrible show on TV. I, I watch every now and then called The News. It just puts me in a depressed mood. You know, you don't see positive things. I, wanna, I want things that lift me. And that's why I love sports. My wife's like, why are you so into sports? I'm like, because, honey, at any given moment, something extraordinary can happen. And that's what I'm living. That's why the Olympics, the Olympics, I don't usually, I don't even usually root for America anymore at the Olympics. My wife's like, why aren't you rooting for America? I'm like, who am I going to root for? The American with the, the microchip in his Nikes or the barefoot Sudanese refugee who just survived a civil war. And, you know, they do the background story on him. He's like, oh, I learned how to run when I was running away from the bullets, you know? And I'm like, of course I'm rooting for that guy. It's incredible. So, but that's all. Americans love the underdog. I always like rooting for the underdog. So uh, again, long answer to your short question. Uh, so what I'm learning about right now is uh, I've really been researching about people, extraordinary people from around the world, really focused on women, uh, focused on minorities. Uh, and it's really especially important because a lot of the audiences I'm speaking to, you know, if I'm in Egypt, a little kid in Egypt needs to hear about somebody that was once a little kid in Egypt that became successful. Uh, I mean, I was just watching an interview with uh, ABBA, the founders of ABBA, and I didn't realize how tough it was at the time for a Swedish rock band to become a hit. They're like, oh, it's very easy if you're American or British, but it wasn't so very, so very easy if you were Swedish. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, so I think kids everywhere, people, all ages, but definitely kids need to hear those positive stories. So that's what I'm learning. That's amazing. And I, and I so appreciate your, your, again, that back to that humility piece, like that humility of like, I wrote this whole book. And then I realized like, this was the pattern that, <laughs> that happened in the yeah. book and I needed to correct them. So now I am. And so I just, I really appreciate that you're modeling kind of what we're calling people to do as well. And so thank you for, for naming that. Um, my last question is just, where can people learn more about you or, or connect with you online as they kind of go off and, and are really inspired by this episode and want to keep in touch? Yeah, probably the easiest. I, I don't want to throw out too many different uh, websites to everybody. So probably if you just go to freereadingtraining.com, freereadingtraining.com. That way you'll get your complimentary copy of the book and you'll get, uh, I think they're updating the site to, to make the, because I did this, I recently did this five-day reading challenge where every day for an hour, I gave a whole bunch of strategies. So you'll get access to that. So if you just go to freereadingtraining.com, that way you're not all confused. And uh, if you if you forget me, it's I my last name's really easy to remember. It's Danny Brussel. My last name's spelled like Braz Cell. No, I, I never took any grief over that as a child. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Danny, for being on the podcast. Today. And I'll drop the links to those um, websites in the show notes as well. So if you're driving, don't feel like you need to write that down. You can come back to them later. Thanks Danny. so much, Lindsay. Actually, I'll, I'll conclude. This is the way, whether I was teaching my little ones or my older ones, they always had to hear me say the same refrain as they left class every day. I always told them, remember kids, education is valuable but execution is priceless. 
Knowledge is not power. Only applied knowledge is power. Knowing what the right thing to do and doing the right thing are two very different things. So go out and do the right thing and make this world a much better place. That is a beautiful way to close. Thanks so much, Danny. Thank you. God bless. If you're leaving this episode wanting more, you're going to love my live coaching intensive curriculum bootcamp. I help one department or grade team create feminist, anti-racist curricula that challenges, affirms, and inspires all students. We weave current events into course content and amplify student voices, which skyrockets engagement and academic achievement. It energizes educators feeling burnt out, and it's just two days. Plus, you can reuse the same process anytime you create a new unit, which saves time and money. If you can't wait to bring this to your staff, I'm inviting you to sign up for a 20-minute call with me. Grab a spot on my calendar at www.lindsaybethlyons.com contact. Until next time, leaders, continue to think big, act brave, and be your best self. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at teachbetter.com slash podcasts, and we'll see you at the next episode.